This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, a long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, some droids went wandering into a desert. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, a sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep and I'm joined by always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we are launching into what is going to be a multi-episode epic run of movies. Yes, films of importance in science fiction sorts. So With many a lot movies. Of stars in their titles. Yeah, oh my god. <laughs> So yeah, so of course we just finished all of the original series episodes for Star Trek and we are moving in towards the original series Star Trek movies before we get to move on to anything else. But there was an incredibly important historical film that came out in between the end of the animated series and the first Star Trek movie that's so historically important in the context of film history that it would be pretty impossible for us to talk about anything that comes after this point without referencing it even a little bit. So I figured that we kind of had to do this as an episode, even though it's there's there's a really long running debate about whether it counts as science fiction or not, which I'm sure we'll get into at least a little bit. But for the purposes of what we're doing, it's a landmark science fiction film even if itself wouldn't count as as much hard or or philosophical sci-fi as we usually try to stick to but you know too influential basically it's too influential to everything that came after it's too big to ignore so of course we are doing the original 1977 american sci-fi epic star wars you can tell me the stars now. <laughs> now I'll see how much you can do. Yeah. Just... Uh, I could pretty much do the entire thing, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Star Wars, not subtitled A New Hope until the uh, 1981 re release when it became obvious that it was the first movie in a trilogy. Yes, but why didn't it make an episode one then? Uh, who knows? <laughs> uh, just because. Um, very, very influential film written by, and this movie directed by George Lucas, who uh, was before this known as a fairly competent filmmaker, just had a lot of success with his 1973 film, American Graffiti. Which I have not seen, but uh, maybe I should fix that at some point. I have. Pretty standard, fairly competent you know car movie boom, boom. which uh, of course also starred harrison ford um this this level of success gave him kind of the money and leeway to work on a passion project which was this very spanning epic sci-fi adventure very very influenced by old movie serials like buck rogers yes uh buck rogers flash gordon all those sorts of things uh and uh I've seen a, a whole collection of those, and yeah, there's there's some good parallels there. Of like, okay, we're here, we're doing this thing, we're we're dealing with the bad guy, and then we're on to the next set piece to do the thing and do the this other thing, and then sort of have this other challenge we have to now take care of, and uh, you know, kind of put them together, and you can sort of create movies with them that kind of resemble Star Wars in some ways. Yeah, you had the very very quick 
jumping from set piece action scene to set piece action scene the opening title crawl thing that lets you get right to the action of the movie with no kind of setup and kind of an, even the episode four thing sort of invoking the idea that you're just in the middle of this large spanning epic adventure like you would be if you went to the movie and saw like the middle of one of these serial serialized shorts yeah it's a uh, both a marketing technique and also a, a homage in a way yeah which is something that they that was also done in other movies like indiana jones a lot of things from this era because the like you know all the big filmmakers from this era like spielberg and lucas that that like you know kind of famous director clump that you got in sort of the 60s 70s and 80s um were all very very influenced of by these sorts of things as kids so when they grew up and got into filmmaking themselves that's where their influences came from star wars of course is uh, often referenced as one of the first genre pastiche films because it takes a lot of inspiration from older serialized science fiction shorts like buck rogers flash gordon but also wears a lot of influences from old westerns um war movies especially like dogfight style movies for all of the aerial combat scenes uh, a lot of kurosawa film influences including the basic structure of a new hope being almost entirely based on uh the hidden fortress so it's another film i should watch <laughs> yeah so it's it's a mashup of a lot of different genres all kind of put into one thing with a fairly coherent art style like the the art direction for this movie is one of the things that a lot of people remember most strongly about it it is a very recognizably star warsy style now this sort of uh, technological but rustic sort of vibe in a lot of places and then you got the uh, you know the imperials with their you know cutting edge everything's clean straight you know angles and Lots of lots of black and white. Yeah, the very, very fascist decoded Imperials. So there's a lot of historical stuff to talk about. We'll probably get a bit more into it after the fact. Um, so, of course, written and directed by George Lucas, very, very famously starring a lot of people that you heard of, though. Lots of people who were relative newcomers at the time. Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker hadn't been in a lot of things up to this point, even though he's a household name now because of Star Wars. Indeed. But uh, guess what he was in? Mm -hmm. 1972. The FBI. (laughs) (laughs) It's back. (laughs) This follows us everywhere. Yes. (laughs) Harrison Ford was the largest star involved with the project at the time, second only to Sir Alec Guinness, who... Um, was playing more of a side character, but like Harrison Ford was the big name draw actor. Yes, uh, you know he's been in a number of things before then, including American uh, Graffiti. So he's worked with George Lucas before, and if I recall, uh, part of the way he got his uh, you know role there was that he was kind of reading opposite uh, uh, other people that were auditioning, and they're like, you know, maybe you should be Han. Yeah, that works out. Yeah, he was not originally planned to be cast. He was just being used for screen tests because he was friends with lucas uh also uh, harrison ford was also in uh in 1969 the fbi 
<laughs> in fact, I saw this interesting interview with Mark Hamill a while back where he said that it, during his initial screen tests, reading opposite Harrison Ford, he thought he was auditioning to be Harrison Ford's sidekick because <laughs> there's no way they would cast him as the main character of a movie. Yeah, uh, Harrison Ford, he's going to be playing this Luke guy, right? <laughs> Why am I reading Luke's lines? What? <laughs> then also newcomer Carrie Fisher playing Princess Leia. So, uh, she was not in the FBI, but uh, she's uh, has sort of become uh, well-known as an actor in a number of things, but also a script doctor, as it's called in the Hollywood parlance, where they sort of go in and uh, tweak uh, scripts that are barely filmable into something a little bit more workable. Uh, so she's worked on things like The Last Action Hero, uh, Cody uh, Ugly, The Wedding Singer, uh, and you know uh, various other sort of films there, including three other Star Wars movies. You know, <laughs> as far as you know script finagling goes then they needed a lot of script finagling yes. i loved <laughs> last action hero she did a good job hi fun movie then uh, peter cushing's playing grand mar grand moff tarkin moff is a weird word yes but it's an interesting word i like it because it's like it inspires that this is some important title, but you don't know what it is. He was best known for playing a lot of roles in uh, Hammer production horror movies in the 50s and 60s. He's also uh, played a few uh, very sirs, dukes, and kings. Uh, he's also played Doctor Who. Really? When? Yes, but not the Doctor. Not the Doctor from Doctor Who, but Doctor Who from in Doctor Who and the Daleks. Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, as well as Dalek Invasion of Earth 2150, which were uh, U.S., I uh, believe, uh, maybe, I, I don't remember, I don't remember if it was U.S. Uh, produced movies, but uh, people were trying uh, to cash in on the the craze about the Daleks. Mm. So like, yeah, we'll make a sort of semi-not-related couple of films here and try to make some money. And oh, okay. That kind of thing. Passable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a lot of the same stuff that is happens in a couple of adventures of Doctor Who, but with Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. And then we've already mentioned Sir Alec Guinness playing Obi-Wan Kenobi. Who's also been in a number of things. Yeah, the most well-read and biggest kind of gravitasy actor that they got for this thing. Lawrence of Arabia, um, the prisoner, not that one. Uh, you know, great expectations. Uh, even more recently, uh, you know, uh, he, he's passed away now, but uh, he was in things all the way up until like 90, you know, 96. So uh, with Mute Witness as the Reaper. Don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> then people who are sadly not as much household names in the thing. Anthony Daniels playing C-3PO, both uh, acting inside of the suit and doing the voice. Yeah, he mostly plays C-3PO, just in general. Uh, Kenny Barker playing R2-D2. He was in Time Bandits. As was every other little person actor from the time period, as far as I understand. Pretty much, yes. Uh, Peter Matthews playing Chewbacca. I don't think he did the voice. I think the voice is a mashup of a lot of animals. Yes, <laughs> uh, the voice is artificially created. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Peter Mayhew uh, mainly plays Chewbacca, but he also plays an occasional tall character mm -hmm. in various other things. Yeah, he's one of those tall dudes. Yes. Then uh, David Prowse, who did the acting for Darth Vader, also read lines on set. Then, of course, James Earl Jones very famously did the voice of Darth Vader. 
Yes, uh, James Earl Jones of uh, now uh, well, the, the baseball movie. Yeah, best known for doing the one dude from Field of Dreams. Field of Dreams, there we go. Nothing Not else. Mile originally. Yeah, I should remember that. <laughs> uh, he was also in City Limits, which was uh, done by uh, covered by MST3K. <laughs> also, most famously, played the bad guy in Conan the Barbarian. Oh yeah. We're not going to cover Conan, though. No. It's a lot outside of our uh, wheelhouse. Maybe He-Man. Maybe He-Man. <laughs> and uh, one other person we should definitely mention, even though I don't usually get into a lot of production stuff on these things, but for Star Wars specifically, very important. Uh, Marcia Lucas did the editing for Star Wars, which made the movie what it is, because yes. George Lucas's original reel for Star Wars was god awful <laughs> whoops so i uh, will uh cut out all this pointless crap and uh rearrange a few things and keep this bit that's actually kind of good and there we go we got star wars excellent in fact play some of the scenes backward to <laughs> make things happen in the, the scene near the beginning where the droids are hiding from the stormtroopers was footage of them coming out of a doorway played backward to make them hide inside of a building <laughs> nice like all kinds of things like that she basically rewrote the entire movie in the editing room <laughs> so thank you marcia so we should probably jump in we're gonna have a lot of historical and other stuff to cover um i'm gonna try to be a little bit brief because basically everyone knows the plot of this movie including people who have never gotten to see it Yes. In fact, I've weirdly enough found some people uh, over my years that have not never seen Star Wars, but they still know most what's going on. Yeah. So if I actually got a little bit of insight because I got to watch it with someone who had actually never seen it before for this watch through. Oh, nice. And yeah, they knew the entire plot. <laughs> Basically, the thing they told me was they knew every single scene in the movie. They just didn't know what order they went in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Space, the final frontier. Galaxy is on the verge of vaguely defined civil war between the evil empire, as written in the text, the evil empire, it's their official name. Oh, it's good to be, uh, just slap that on the, uh, on, on the label there so people aren't confused. And the Rebel Alliance. Uh, Princess Leia, a leader of some description in the Rebel Alliance, is currently on the run after getting plans from the Empire's new super weapon, a space station capable of destroying entire planets. Oh, this sounds uh, like it was a, quite a caper uh, that they uh, managed to get these uh, uh, plans. Uh, I wonder if we'll ever end up seeing some of that. No, and you didn't want to. Go away. <laughs> <laughs> we have probably the most famous opening scene in movie history after the title crawl fades away, and we see Leia's ship being chased by a massive Imperial Star Destroyer, a giant triangle ship. So, uh, this thing's like, you know, like over a kilometer long. Just kind of dwar completely dwarfs this little transport here. On the ship we are introduced to our two droids, C-3PO and R2-D2, as they run down corridors as the crew of the Rebel ship prepare to defend themselves from being boarded as stormtroopers cut through the door after a brief firefight. A large dark cloud figure of Darth Vader boards the ship. Uh, he's apparently very bad news because the music gets really ominous. Yes, uh, this is where everyone should boo, uh, just in general. This guy's he's 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 no good. Uh, Vader begins interrogating the crew about the plans with predictably deadly results. Meanwhile, C-3PO finds R2 in a back corridor getting something from a woman dressed in white. Yes, uh, R2, uh, what are you doing hanging out with strangers? Come here. 
He then leads 3PO to an escape pod, dropping to the planet below, leaving behind the woman who is immediately captured by the Imperial Stormtroopers. Oh, I guess they found the ambassador. So R2 and 3PO find themselves in the middle of a vast sandy desert with nothing, no plants, no anything for miles and miles. Wait a moment, is this Dune? Yeah, it looks a bit like Dune. So 3PO is fed up with R2's uh, propensity for trouble and decides to ignore his friend's advice and wander off into the dunes, separating. Soon after, R2's attacked by small hooded creatures who uh, disable him in a canyon, and 3PO sees a transport in the distance and signals it, believing it to be his salvation. Hooray! I'm saved! Get me out of here! Back at the pod, stormtroopers have found the uh, remains of part of one of the droids that I guess they dropped and tracks leading to the desert. So now they know they're looking for some droids that had the plans and escaped on the escape pod. So uh, do we just follow the tracks then? It'll lead us pretty much uh, where they're at pretty soon here, right? Yeah, probably. So 3PO wakes up in the middle of a droid scrap heap surrounded by other machines, including R2. Oh, well, at least we're with friends, right? Also, everyone's favorite droid appears in this scene, Mr. Gonk. Is that, is that the big refrigerator sort of one? Yeah, which I just, <laughs> I, it's not important at all. I did my best to kind of ignore, try to watch this as if I didn't know literally everything about this movie since I was five, but yeah. <laughs> it just really amuses me that there's just a walking trash can that goes gonk. Yeah. <laughs> I've been used everyone else too, because it's probably the only other droid in this thing that everyone knows anything about. It was the one that explodes. But yeah. <laughs> so 3PO and R2 find each other just as the transport stretches to a halt, basically making the last five minutes of movie scenes entirely pointless. Yep. So, <laughs> so the uh, sand crawler, which is what this big thing is called, we don't know this from the movie, really, has uh, stopped outside of a desert dwelling. A young farm boy, Luke Skywalker, runs up to see the droids being lined up in front of the crawler, and his uncle Owen decides which ones they're going to buy, basically. Uh, make sure they speak uh, bocce mm -hmm. so they can roll one. They decide on 3PO, who can speak bocce and communicate with their moisture evaporators, and a red astrodroid unit who does something for them, I guess. I don't know why they need an astromech droid for a farm. Maybe they, you know, want to reprogram a computer occasionally. Mm -hmm. They could just tell it what to do and... They don't have to learn programming languages themselves. Needs a droid that's programmed to fly a spaceship. <laughs> yeah. Maybe there's like a truck they need, they have hidden around somewhere that uh, needs some help with that sort of thing. <laughs> so the red asteroid breaks, letting R2 come along with them. We had a small moment of tension there when we thought they might get separated, but you know, that didn't last long. Yes. <laughs> Owen tells Luke to get the new droids all cleaned up, even though Luke was going to go do something in town get power converters which is very fun apparently yeah well well maybe he's into like uh, uh building i don't know uh, weapons maybe yeah we're gonna go with that i feel like this may be something that's kind of like goes over my head as a child of the late 80s and 90s um that that this might have been some sort of like reference to sort of car culture or something like you go into town and pick up car bits and then fix your car on the weekends and it's supposed to be like fun greaser or something maybe wait does that mean luke's a greaser maybe he's he's a flyboy. it's all coming together man so in the garage luke is cleaning r2 and complaining a great deal about his situation being stuck on this weird backwater planet when suddenly R2 starts playing a hologram of the woman from the ship. Well, this is mysterious. Uh, is it some sort of uh, a calling uh, for adventure, perhaps? Yeah, you could call it that. <laughs> you could call it a call. Literal call. <laughs> the message is addressed to someone called Obi-Wan Kenobi, and it keeps on looping the end of the message. 
Uh, R2 suggests that they might remove the little restraining thingy that the Jawas has put on him, and that might unlock the rest of the message. But as soon as it's removed, the message disappears. And also, that means R2 could wander off if he wants oh. to. <laughs> ah, but he's too small to wander off. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Luke wonders if Obi-Wan might be related to the old hermit Ben Kenobi, having the same last name and all. Hmm. Obi-Wan... Ben Kenobi? Hmm. Uh, before he can do more, Luke is called in for dinner, and he voices concerns that the droids may have been stolen because they keep talking about how they're old owners and fights with the Empire and things. Also, he wants to leave the farm for some sort of academy, but his uncle is very against it and says that they won't talk about it till next year. And also, that they should take the droids into town to have their memories wiped, and that'll be the end of all this nonsense. Well, uh, I guess that is a little frightening on a couple of things here. If you're a droid, you can just get your mi- uh, mind erased. I hope that never happens to our heroes. Yeah, to ignore that. Yeah. <laughs> Don't think about that. You're not supposed to think about things. Yes. <laughs> uh, also, this academy, I, I just kind of wonder whose academy this might be. I know. We we never learn anything about it. But like, what what is this? Because yeah, Luke does express that he's you know no fan of the Empire, but it's like, so... Who else is running so, an so academy? Yeah. yeah. Also... Um, we we know that his friend goes to the academy, and he shows up later with the rebels. Yeah, is it a rebel academy? Maybe <laughs> there's uh, maybe some planets that uh, is like just yeah, don't attack us, Empire. We're just teaching people how to fly really well. Yeah. So when Luke returns, R two has run off. Unfortunately, it's dark and too dangerous for him to go out in the dark desert, so they have to wait until early morning. Thankfully, you have a couple suns here, so, you know. So the next day, he takes 3PO out on his land speeder to track down R2. They find him, but they also find sand people, who soon incapacitate Luke and begin rummaging around his land speeder until a hooded figure appears that's howling like a wild animal and scares them away. This is Ben. Good old oh no, ben. ben Kenobi is also going to be uh, carjacking us today. <laughs> he wakes up Luke, who tells him all about the droid and how he's looking for Obi-Wan. Uh, ben does know who Obi-Wan is because it's him. Oh, well, that is convenient. Yeah, it then, was uh, very convenient, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> it's almost like these droids knew to king come here. Hmm. They head to Ben's small home and talk about this somewhere safe. Inside, Ben tells Luke all about his father, who used to be a Jedi from the Clone Wars before he was killed by an evil Jedi called Darth Vader. Oh, well, that sucks to be him then. Uh, that, uh, you know, Luke's, you know, starting to get some hero worship about his dad, but now it turns out he's passed away. Yeah. Also, it's really difficult to tell what they planned for future movies and all the things in this, since everybody knows the whole, like, you know, I am your father reveal thing at this point. Spoilers. Oh, no, oh my God. <laughs> But, like, I thought it was interesting because despite obviously not having a lot of stuff planned for later movies at this point, this has one of the most foreshadowy scenes in the entire movie. Yes. Because <laughs> he's like, you knew my father? It's like, oh, shit. Um, uh, uh, he got killed by, by this dude. So. Yeah. Yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, this, this guy's bad news. Uh, don't team up with him. Also, Ben gives Luke his father's old lightsaber, which is a good old-fashioned laser sword. Neat. Also, uh, don't look in that end. Just yeah, look don't look there. directly into the pointy end of it. <laughs> but yeah, it's an elegant weapon that indefinably is better than a gun for some reason. Well, if you know how to use it, you can block uh, blaster shots with it. Yeah, but nobody knows this, apparently. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so they're soon able to get R2 to play the rest of the message from earlier. 
It's from Princess Leia Organa, and she has put the Imperial plans inside of R2-D2 and wants Ben to take him to Alderaan. Well, I guess to Alderaan it is then. Uh, uh, sorry, Luke, but uh, this is a dangerous journey, and wait a moment. You should come with us. Yeah, Ben thinks he's way too old for this and wants Luke to come with him, but Luke can't just leave. He's got stuff to do. He has to get home. He's been away for too long already and is probably in trouble. Yeah, he's got moisture to harvest. Yeah. I'm going to follow up to that. <laughs> They're moisture farmers. It's weird. <laughs> Makes sense given the desert environment, but still. Does it? If you need water and there's only one way to get it is some sort of farming situation? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why is there so much moisture in the air if it doesn't rain? Like, where are the plants even? I don't know. Maybe it's all like bacteria. <laughs> Except for that one carrot we see. <laughs> Uh, so on the Imperial Death Star, their super weapon planet-destroying thingy-bob. The big space ball. The higher-ups are having a meeting about how amazing their new super weapon is. Hooray, super one. There's a teeny bit of debate about whether the Rebel Alliance is a threat, but it's interrupted by the arrival of Vader and Grand Moff Tarkin, who announces that the Empire has disbanded the Senate. Done evil oh. dictator stuff, apparently. Well, uh, what about the, uh, the, the, the various systems? They're not going to like this. They're going to be like... We don't have representation in government anymore. What's going on? Yeah, now they're going to use the fear of being destroyed by their super battle station to keep all of the systems in check. Oh, so it's all covered then. Uh, uh, carry on. Vader tells them all to not get too comfortable because the Force is still better than their super weapon. For hmm. Somehow. Yes. So, uh, sorcerer guy here. Uh, have you... Are you going to be uh, 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 conjuring up the stolen plants? Why, why is it feeling hard to to breathe here suddenly. Vader, of course, immediately uses his mind powers to choke a naysayer. Uh, Tarkin tells him to stop it. I guess being able to choke someone with your mind is better than blowing up a planet. Well, if you could do it like to everybody on the planet simultaneously, then you won't have to blow up the planet. Also, Vader is going to get Leia to give up the location of the rebel base, and then they can go blow it up. Well, I guess it's good we have this new super weapon that the rebels are wanting to destroy. So, cool. Yeah. <laughs> So on the way back home, Luke and Ben have come across the Jawa's Sandcrawler, uh, the same ones who sold them R2-D2 and C-3PO. Hey, we can get some more droids. Yeah, free droids. It looks like an attack by sand people, but Ben points out that it's only to meant to look like an attack by sand people, and it was actually Imperial troops. Dun-dun-dun! Imperials, they're on to the Jawas, and they're... A droid theft uh, ring. Yeah. Also, I'd be remiss. This line gets pointed out a lot. It says, only Imperial stormtroopers are such precise shots. When? Yeah. <laughs> Not in this movie. <laughs> they miss every shot they take. <laughs> Luke panics, because of course this is going to lead the Imperials back to his home, and he speeds away despite Ben's warnings. He arrives to a burnt-out settlement with burned bodies of his aunt and uncle splayed out by the door. Um, one would imagine this would be pretty traumatizing, but he just heads back and goes, well, nothing keeping me here anymore. Let's go. So um, should we noted that Luke, Lucas is not very good at dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. As um, I believe Harrison Ford once said, you can write this shit, but you can't read it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, having a, a Luke there not more upset by this is, I guess, a very Lucas sort of thing. 
So they arrive at Mos Eisley, a spaceport where they can find transport off-world. Ben demonstrates his mind powers by mind-controlling some stormtroopers in what should be a mildly concerning way for someone who just decided to travel with this random old dude he barely knows. But Yes. Hmm. This is getting a little awkward. Uh, ben then also cuts off the arm of a man threatening Luke in a bar. As you do. So, you know. so far, the, the three things we know about this guy is that he's really scary to the local indigenous population he has mind control powers and he's willing to cut off a dude's arm yes <laughs> so uh the, the sand people were definitely like let's get the hell out of here and uh everyone else should be uh, taking the same advice really here they find han solo the smuggler space pirate sort of dude and his first mate chewbacca the wookie oh, i wonder where these guys came from uh wonder if there's going to be uh, any footage about that no there definitely won't be. No one can claim otherwise. Go away. <laughs> they can get them to Alderaan for a very steep fee. Then Luke has to sell his speeder, but it's fine. Uh, Han takes care of a bounty hunter who's been sent here to kill him for his debts to a crime boss. And later, they all arrive at the Millennium Falcon and nothing happens in between. Yes. <laughs> and uh, Han definitely shot first. <laughs> so Luke describes this as a hunk of junk. They don't really have much time to debate this, though. Because the stormtroopers start firing at them and they have to take off in a hurry. Let's get the hell out of here. In space, they're briefly pursued by a Star Destroyer, but they're able to escape into hyperspace very quickly. Uh, back on the Death Star, Vader has failed to persuade Leia with his weird little torture bot thing that we are not going to mention. It's kind of creepy. It's a droid that's like a big sphere with a big syringe on the side, and I'm not sure what's trying to be doing there. Yeah. Uh, so they don't have the location yet, but Tarkin's decided to use an ultimate method of persuasion, where he's set the station to come to Alderaan, and faced with the destruction of her home planet, Leia gives the location of the Rebels as Dantooine. Uh, Tarkin decides that he's going to destroy Alderaan anyway, because they're evil, I guess. You're far too trusting. And a massive beam fires from the Death Star, vaporizing the planet immediately. Well, uh, I, uh... I guess if we uh, had any friends on Alderaan, they're uh, probably not there anymore. So on the Falcon, Ben is suddenly shocked by a great outcry in the Force, as if millions cried out in fear and then suddenly were silenced. But sure, it's nothing to worry about. Just a random occurrence. You probably have these every few weeks anyway, you know. He bids Luke to continue his training with the lightsaber, who quickly learns that he can use it blindfolded to block laser blasts. Han is weirdly skeptical about this. Just getting lucky, right? It's like, yeah, it's just luck how you blocked three bolts in a row without being able to see them. Just luck. Luck is stupid. Stupid people believe luck is magic. So, uh, I I'm the disbeliever here in the group. Um, also, uh, I, I like money. Yeah, he likes money, shooting people, he likes smuggling, and he doesn't believe in space magic. So he's our grounded character. Yeah. So on the... Death Star, they've scoured the planet Dantooine and found an abandoned rebel base, which makes Tarkin very angry. Grr. Yes. He orders Leia killed, basically. Immediately, it should be added. Yeah. But it takes them a while. <laughs> Immediately in several hours. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the Imperial. I'm sure they've got a lot of bureaucracy to get through. Have to do all the proper transfer orders to get her in the right cell block. That's next to the execution chamber, you know. So the Falcon drops out of hyperspace into an asteroid field that used to be Alderaan. They're immediately attacked by a small fighter. They have no idea how it got out here because it 
can't go two places on its own. It's just small fighter. Yeah, no hyperdrive, just local drive. But they decide to follow it and try to blow it up before it can give away their position. Uh, they soon see it flying towards a massive Death Star-shaped thing. Maybe it's some sort of moon. Yeah. And then they are immediately trapped in a tractor beam. Oh no! So the ship is brought on board, but is seemingly abandoned because our heroes have hidden in the smuggling panels on the floor. Hmm, good thing we, uh, we're hanging out with the smuggler here. Vader orders the ship scanned. The scanning crew and the two guards are very quickly knocked out, and they steal their clothes. So now Luke and Han are disguised as stormtroopers and take over the control room overlooking the docking bay. And, uh, you know, the, the security of this Death Star seems pretty light. Then again, this thing's freaking huge. There probably, you know, barely any people be actively anyway. So. Yeah, it's weird. This thing is too big. Yes. So here are two interfaces with the computer, finds the tractor beam power controls, and Ben runs off to take care of that. Soon after, R2 finds Leia in the detention cells, and with a brief bit of convincing about uh, rewards and heroism and things, uh, they convince Han to help save her. Yeah, the, the princess, she's clearly rich. All princesses are rich, you know? Yeah, her home planet, where she probably kept her money, is, you know, not gone or anything. Yeah, it, it's it's all on a bank on some other planet, for, for realsies. So they arrive at the detention area with Chewbacca in cuffs, and he breaks loose, and they proceed to shoot everyone in the room as well as all the cameras. And so uh, people call in pretty quickly. It's like, so uh, you guys having some issues up there? You seem like you're having some issues up there. Yeah, Luke runs down to the cells, and Han fails to delay reinforcements. Which I believe that line uh, about his reply was actually ad-libbed intentionally. <laughs> That's probably why it feels well-written. Yes. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Leia does the you're a little short thing. They rescue her, but it goes bad immediately because they're trapped in a hallway. And she is forced to save them all by blasting open a sewer grate and having them escape into the trash. Well, I guess we're going to stink for the rest of this movie. Here they are attacked by some sort of tentacle monster thing and then they are almost crushed but r2 shuts it down pretty immediately and they're able to get out yet another fairly pointless aside all things considered tension uh ben arrives at the power controls and uses his power to distract the guards and shut down the power just for fun and profit i guess the only reason that this scene exists is to get him separated from the group yeah, well, they need to deal with that tractor beam somehow. On the way back, the rest of the party encounter a lot of guards. Han runs off to distract them, running down several halls, running into a room of more stormtroopers that he comically evades, and then eventually escaping down a random corridor. <laughs> There's a lot of shootings and things like that and uh, action. Luke and Leia take a different route, leads to a strange, giant, open trench. Yes, uh, you know... You know, this is not future OSHA, but uh, the, uh, the the past OSHA is going to be very upset with you. Luke uses his uh, random utility belt that he got from the Stormtrooper outfit to grappling hook his way across with Leia because they have to do some sort of heroic thing. And then they both also head for the ship. Good. Uh, we should probably keep this grappling hook going forward, you know? So the party all reach the hangar and the guards leave. How lucky. Yeah, they seemed uh, mildly distracted by something, so... Unfortunately, the thing the guards have seen that distracted them was Ben fighting Vader, who was here waiting for him to get back. Oh no! Dun dun dun! They have a very brief, ineffective fight with lightsabers, because, as was pointed out by someone before the prequels came out, this is an old man who probably hasn't used this thing in years, and a guy who's basically mostly a robot. So they're not going to be in the best fighting shape. <laughs> they're a little stiff. <laughs> 
then Ben sees Luke watching them fight, and he lifts his sword to sacrifice himself to Vader t- to disappear as a lesson for Luke or something, I guess. Yes, I'm going to trans, you know, you know, mute myself into pure force energy here, so uh, you'll know to do this later. Luke is understandably distraught and starts random firing until he hears Ben's voice in his head telling him to run away. Run, Luke, run! Get out of there! Why, why are you taking so long to leave? Damn it, Luke, I didn't sacrifice myself just to get you, so- get you killed! Ah! So they escape the Death Star, but are chased by fighters. Uh, Luke and Han get into large-mounted guns, allowing them to escape toward the rebel base. This, though, was the plan, because Tarkin has placed a tracking device on their ship. Oh no, the bad guys thought of this possibility. Yeah, Leia knows this. She's smart. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, this is too easy. They let us go. But Come she on. takes them all to the rebel base anyway. You can't you you can't rendezvous somewhere and take a different ship. Yeah, that makes sense, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I guess maybe you know she would, wouldn't have enough money to uh, you know pay uh, for a, a second ship there. So you know, because Al- Alderaan just got exploded. I mean, Han, don't listen to this part of the conversation here. Yes, your money's coming. It's fine. So they get to the gas giant Yavin, one of the moons of which has the secret rebel base on it. Is it secret? Is it safe? They take the intelligence from R2 and analyze it for weaknesses, which they quickly find. They brief their fighter pilots, including Luke, on the tiny, 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 tiny thing they need to shoot to blow up the Death Star. Yeah, it's womp rat size. Yeah. They say it's no more than two meters wide. That's six feet in diameter that's not that small also how big are these rats pretty big <laughs> like i used to shoot womp rats they're not much bigger than two meters that's the size of a person yep <laughs> oh, uh luke has been on adventures of some sort uh, you know multiple times in the past and you know i don't think we'll ever get to see those also i'm just i don't know i don't even think this was a trope yet at this point but like we're definitely going to get into how all the hero's journey stuff that you have to talk about for this movie. So he even started fighting rats. Yes. (laughs) He leveled up until he was ready to go. (laughs) So they all scramble to their fighters to attack the Death Star, which has arrived and is currently in orbit around Yavin, waiting to get a clear shot at the moon. Yeah, just gotta slowly make our way around here, slow orbit, it's fine. So Han is, of course, leaving, even though Luke asks him to stay and fight, but he has his money and he doesn't want to risk it, even though he obviously likes Luke, even asking him to come with them. Like, uh, yeah, it's kind of suicide to stay here, so I'm going to leave. The attack on the Death Star goes somewhat poorly. Uh, several attacks are made, they're all getting shot constantly, there's a lot of fighters around. Uh, most of the ones who fly down the trench either miss or get destroyed. So not not the best attack so far. Yes, uh, there's uh, several trench runs uh, throughout, uh, but apparently there are supposed to be more. This was already an overly long fight sequence. So uh, it could have been longer, folks. Even Darth Vader himself gets in his own super personalized ship and goes into the battle with his escorts. So the TIE fighters like have the flat sides, but his like has sort of this uh, parentheses sort of thing going on. Finally, it's Luke and his wingman's turn. Uh, he begins his attack run with his locked-on targeting computer, but Ben's voice, but Ben's voice whispers again, telling him to trust his instincts and turn the computer off. Oh, are you sure about this, Ben? Yes, I do not want you to fail. <laughs> 
Yes, not at all. <laughs> Vader pulls in behind him and is about to take the shot when the ship on his right suddenly explodes, sending him flying into space. This is, of course, Han and the Falcon flying in out of the sun to save the day. Hooray, Han, you decided to risk your life anyway. Well, I guess most of the other people were dead anyway, so... Eh, yeah. I figured I'd want to keep at least one friend around. Luke takes the shot, and seconds before the Death Star fires, it explodes, saving the rebellion. Hooray! There's much celebrating. R2 is repaired from the damage that he took on the ship. Uh, Luke and Han are given medals, and Chewbacca gets to watch. Dang it. Chewie, you were there the entire time. You're, you're Han's co-pilot. You deserve something. I hope yeah. you get a medal eventually. The end. Also, why does Han get a medal? Lots of other people were there, and... Like, saved Luke before. Yes. <laughs> Wedge saved Luke earlier. He doesn't get a medal. Well, uh, maybe he gets his medal later. Because <laughs> he's in the hospital right now. I don't know. <laughs> but Chewie's right there. Come on. <laughs> so, that was uh, Star Wars. So, there's there's obviously a ton of historical stuff. Everyone brings up uh, the hero's journey. Joseph Campbell's hero with a thousand faces as the you know, general inspiration for this, but it was the general inspiration for literally all Western media after 1960. <laughs> it's like, can we, how it follow these specific beats here? Because that's apparently uh, the only way you can make a good story. So that's just copy and paste. So I've, I've been a fan of these movies since I was a kid. Like I watched them with my mom when I was a child. We had them on VHS. I had, like, some random action figures I found at a yard sale. Like, I've been... I was really obsessed with these when I was a kid. So... Oh, they're, they're great films, you know? Sitting down, re-watching for the first time in a while, and trying to think about how to talk about them from a critical perspective, I was kind of faced with this question. What are these movies about? That's a good question, actually. <laughs> uh, the... There is, to a certain extent, you know, the very top-level struggles against good and evil. Uh, you know, uh, people that are seeking their, their their freedom and their own way in life versus those who wish to control and kill. Uh, that is sort of the top-level stuff there, but uh, there's maybe a bit more to it Yeah, than that. sort of. The thing is, there's a lot of little bits that you can read into. There's anti-fascist coding. It's not really explicitly stated because you don't actually know the political ideologies or motivations of either side of this conflict. They're never stated in the text. The, uh, the re rebellion could be that they're not actually rebelling against the empire for being, you know, dictators and things like that. Maybe they really want to instill uh, a specific uh, religion where, you know, Mon Mothra uh, is going to be uh, the the ultimate uh, you know priest uh, priestess queen or something like that. Yeah, so we don't really know enough about <laughs> it for it to be saying anything political. There's some um, minor spirituality messages throughout, but they are all at least a little bit subtextual. So Indeed. you're not really getting a full spirituality message. There's a little bit of an anti-technology message, especially at the end which is also a little weird and somewhat undermined by the very technological movie. Yes. <laughs> we are flying in spaceships and we're going to be anti-technology with our, uh, you know, spiritualism defeats the technology message here. There's, a, there's definitely a very classic, almost sort of Disney-esque 
good versus evil narrative with your chosen one hero. Um, our, uh, our Harry Potter. Yeah. But other than that, like, I'm, I'm struggling to, f- like, not what the movie is saying. The movie is saying a lot of stuff. There's a lot of things that you can critique and read into and look at for, for the, the text of the movie. It's, it's saying a lot of things, as any piece of art is. But what does the movie want to be communicating to you? Well, uh, the I guess maybe the th- my go-to thing when I think about Star Wars is not necessarily a message, but spectacle itself. That it feels big. That is this, you know, an event that is happening that you know, before your eyes that is larger than you. It's a whole other world that is you know filled with possibilities and you know it, that can be explored that is well beyond what is being presented but what is being presented there is is extensive expansive it is that there is much more beyond our own particular lives than we could ever possibly imagine so yeah it's it's kind of reminds me a little bit of like space coded lord of the rings a little bit cuz i'm <laughs> Reading through Lord of the Rings right now, Lord of the Rings isn't trying to say a lot. I think it actually is trying to say a little bit more than Star Wars is, but a lot of it is just a very good versus evil narrative that was written exclusively to justify the fact that Tolkien spent so much of his spare time making up random languages. (laughs) To a degree, yes. (laughs) And it does feel a lot like a big whirlwind tour of like, look at this cool thing I made up. There's, There's a bunch of cool aliens... There's random kit bash diorama things, which, you know, I like aesthetically. It's a very cool movie. <laughs> also, it pion- it didn't exactly pioneer, but it popularized a much faster action-driven editing style that was not widely used in American media at the time. Uh, kind of took inspiration from some uh, French, like French New Wave style editing that was becoming popular a little bit before this. Um, I think the first American movie that used it heavily was uh, Bonnie and Clyde, maybe. Maybe. No, I don't think Bonnie and Clyde. What am I remembering? Anyway, one of those uh, slightly earlier crime movies. One thing after another, after another. You know, with the you know occasional pause here or there, but those pauses are, you know. They don't draw out too long, and they're, they're very much separated from the action. Yeah, the action is the action is very very quickly edited. Uh, this movie less so than some of the other ones. By the time you get to the third movie, uh, Return of the Jedi, the editing is just you know really 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 quick. You're getting those like the the current kind of standard almost is like no more than ten seconds on any one shot. <laughs> Blink and you miss it, really. Mm-hmm. So it. It really kind of pioneered this new style of filmmaking and was incredibly influential for that. So it's it's a gorgeously done movie. Aesthetically, it's very unique. I know people like I've heard different things. Some people love the sort of dirty future thing that it does. Some people don't like it as much, but it's got an incredibly distinct art style that's instantly recognizable. And the sort of a, a, a future rust punk. And a lot of people have pointed out that the the mishmash of different styles gives it this weird kid fascination. Like, yeah, there's there's old western guns, but they're lasers and there's spaceships, but they're kind of boats, but there's also 
ma- like magic wizard people with swords and it's just basically what you would make up playing with toys as a child. A little bit. <laughs> you know, it's it's so I guess it's very much I guess is a movie that is well primed to capture the you know, imagination of the youth of, of young people. Yeah, and a lot of people talk about that, how this is a kid's movie. Mm-hmm. It's an action movie for children, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's a cool, exciting, quickly edited movie. Even to the point where people a little bit I, I was kind of on the edge of this, but people a little bit younger than me um, grew up with the prequel trilogy and they think that's great because it was the star wars movie that they saw as kids and their kids movies they weren't that good these movies weren't that good they're they're passable they're fine they're well made but they aren't amazing pieces of cinema that you can sit down and analyze layers and layers and layers of meaning into they're fun spectacle movies yes and that's kind of (laughs) it You know, uh, you know the, the spectacle, you know, is the point. And to really kind of go, try to go too deep beyond that is kind of missing the point in a way. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you know, poked a little bit of fun at it before, but there is a certain amount of, all right, there is, it's not super deep and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I don't mean it as a criticism, but I think especially because... One, people had to get, people got so into this, especially my generation. If you were introduced to it like a little bit before the like 1990 special edition re-release that kind of launched out the, the whole the greater Star Wars, new Star Wars thing that has not stopped for the last 30 years. Yes. <laughs> um, like when I was a kid, not everyone had seen this. It was a it was a movie from the seventies. It was of course still super well known and recognized. You could find out a lot of stuff about it, but not everyone had seen it. Yeah. So you kind of did get to have a weird sort of child fan base built up around it, and you were kind of inclined to take it more seriously than maybe you needed to because it was this slightly niche thing. It seemed like something very special that you know. Not everyone was in on, and you could sort of, you know, you, you f- found yourself appreciating it, uh, and almost kind of being, you know, something that is yours. Yeah, and I, I really found myself missing that. Like ever, like I got just as excited as any Star Wars fan when they were announced the special editions, and they were fine. Like they didn't add anything; they didn't noticeably detract that much, but they were fine. And then I got really excited when they did the prequel trilogy, and they were fine. I like watched them more than they deserved. Yep. <laughs> I tried to get really excited at the new ones and just couldn't anymore. There's just there's just too much it's now. Kind of worn down. Like yeah, of course. When yeah. when there's only three of these things, and they're this deep, like they have a lot of detailed set dressing and background stuff, and it makes you wonder about it. And if you're a fan, if you're like a fan of something like this that only has three movies, of course you're going to be able to go in and obsess over every detail because what else are you going to do? You only have three of the things to work with. There's so little here 
like we were saying, the movie's not throwing a bunch of deep stuff at you. It's a fun spectacle movie. It's not saying, it's not even really describing much about itself in any way. So it really does capture our imagination. If you're into this as an aesthetic and you get excited about the movie, you get to make up whatever you want about it because nothing else is in there. And so you can you can go and play Jedi Knights with your your friends and a okay and it's as valid as anything else Star Wars, uh, you know. Which of course is it's like there's a reason that a lot of people like the Empire better. Because basically you pick whichever side you like the aesthetic of because you don't know enough about either side's political ideology to be like, no, don't side with the Nazis. Yeah. uh, There is maybe some hints that, you know, these these stormtrooper guys, they're they're all like humans of some sort, right? There's no aliens. Hmm. Also, they're called stormtroopers. Is there anything else that was sort of called like that back in the day? Yeah, it's just all coded. It's all very coded, but it's not really saying a lot. So, okay, that's, I don't know. I don't know, like like we keep saying, there's nothing else here, which is fine. But it doesn't leave for a lot of critique unless we're going to go in and like do like a very specific feminist reading or whatever of the film. I'm not sure it really deserves <laughs> something like that. I mean, people have done this. I, I w- I guess in some ways the thing I kind of hinted at uh, while we're doing the you know the recap there, uh, you know, for me is sort of looking at this film and kind of trying to actively ignore the uh, the other films, materials, TV shows, et cetera, et cetera, and sort of looking at all right. So what is this sort of implicating as far as the the character development and such just in this film as is, and in particular that. Luke is being built up to be someone who sort of, you know, sees his father as a, as a hero, uh, as someone to look up to, someone to emulate. And so, you know, spoilers, when he discovers the truth about his father in Empire Strikes Back, is, you know, is very much a destructive moment for him. But at this point, there is no sort of, you know, hint that, this, you know, that this is going to be something that's going to change up his whole perspective on the world at all. Just that there might be some connection there. Yeah, they're building up a couple things. And they keep name... It's interesting. They do keep name-dropping stuff. It's interesting to see something that's working with a made-up history like this. Because a lot of stuff does over-explain. This under-explains, which gets some interesting things in there. Um, I do that sometimes in my own writing, too. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah it was back at this sort of thing. I What's that about? I never mention, never explain it, and that's fine. So. People compare this a lot with Here with a Thousand Faces, the arc of the hero's journey. I was thinking about it, and I don't think it actually completes the arc fully. Uh, it starts falling apart sometime around Woman is Temptress, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you count the, uh, the tentacle, the trash compactor. Uh. <laughs> and then he never actually returns, having learned yes. something. You know, uh, I guess the return is sort of he's learned to use the force to destroy the death star. Yeah. But all right, let's, um, let's get into this. I don't want to run too super long, but we've got to talk about Joseph Campbell and we've got to talk about legacy a little bit. (laughs) So Joseph Campbell, basically everyone knows, uh, wrote hero with a thousand faces. One of the most influential sort of 
media-ish works of the last hundred years, at least in Western society. Yes. So, so something about a monomyth, right? Yes. He was a big fan of sort of Carl Jung's idea of the collective unconscious, where mm -hmm. very universal symbology can be used to sort of codify a lot of what people think about into a monomythos. Basically, the idea that every culture on Earth essentially is similar enough that you can boil down everyone's mythology and storytelling into sort of a single codified thing, which he called the hero's journey. The hero's journey uh, had, I guess, sort of a laundry list of events that can be sort of uh, lined up with plenty of different stories there. Uh, do you want to go through these or should we uh, do it uh, together? Um, yeah, you may as well go through. I didn't get a list in front of me. So. Right. Uh, so starts off with the call to adventure. So come out and do stuff. Then the hero refuses the call because I don't want to go out because I got, you know, farming to do. Then there's some supernatural aid and it's like, oh, hey, Ben Kenobi, what's up? And then you, you cross the first threshold, uh, which can come in different uh, beans. And uh, it's like, oh, I, I guess I can't really, you know, go home. Uh, so then you go to the belly of the whale and it's like, oh, no, everything's bad. And uh, we're in it now. So then you go on a road of trials for the sort of the, the middle part here start uh, where you uh, got to overcome various things like trash compactors and things like that. Also, you meet the goddess. Uh, so some female sort of, uh, you know, figure there who's like, here, uh, I'm going to help you or maybe give you some advice or something like that. And then you got woman as temptress because, you know, get a you know, male hero going to be uh, distracting your, your uh, you know, you're getting distracted by some lady there. Then your atonement with the father. So you're like, oh, I, I'm sorry, Dad, for leaving home or something like that. Uh, then you uh, got uh, the apotheosis, which is always a word I could not pronounce. Uh, <laughs> where it's like, oh, all right, I got some uh, some new, new stuff kind of coming here, new understanding, things like that. Uh, then you got the ultimate boon where, all right, so we got, we've learned to use the force, something like that. Uh, then the return, the last section here, refusal of the return. I don't want to go back. And then the magic flight where you fly off and do some other stuff. Uh, then rescue from without. So Han comes in and like shoots the, 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 the TIE fighters there. And crossing of the turn threshold. So you're coming back. And then the master of two worlds. I've, I, have, I have my normal life and also this fantastic life. And then you got your freedom to live. And I forgot what that one's about. Oh, it's uh, fr freedom for the fear of death. There we go. <laughs> So there's a few there's a few basic issues with Joseph Campbell and this one. Um, the idea of the monomyth has become a lot less popularized, especially recently, because we have decided to stop trying to view literally all history, mythology, everything from such a yes. Eurocentric <laughs> lens. And we believe yes, uh, that other cultures viewpoints might actually hold some weight and merit. Yeah, there, there might be uh, variances of the extreme variety from this sort of formula. Also, that the, there's a one formula for all stories is a little ridiculous, too. Yeah, and the fact that you're kind of trying to amalgamate everything else together, like not just Western stories, not just all these stories are obviously taking the same general influences that you can track from early European something or other. But no, literally every story that every human has ever told, which is also where you get into the 
problem where um, everyone talks about how accurate this is because, oh my gosh, you can always slot any story into it and people will try to prove it to you. But you can slot any story into it because it's just a set of incredibly broad, ill-defined tropes. And if you're able to pick and choose which ones you're going to be hitting up this time, then you can kind of hit as many as you like, and there you're good. And you hit the problem of things where, like, the woman is Tentress. Doesn't have to be a woman. Doesn't even have to be particularly tempting. Maybe your yes. hero got <laughs> distracted by something briefly for a minute, and that, that was it. That was your woman as Tentress right there. Ah, yes. Uh, sorry, I had to go do my taxes real quick. Um, that was quite the temptation from me from the quest here. So uh, sorry about that. I'm back, guys. What's yeah, up? Yeah, so it starts to kind of fall apart because it's just it's just too incredibly broad. It's creating massive broad categories and then slotting things into them that sort of vaguely fit and claiming to have come up with this great idea of the monomythology. Uh, the best quote that I've ever heard on this from a video like it's a really long video but i'd recommend people look it up it's a video called uh star wars knights of the old republic one and two versus joseph campbell by uh, noah codwell grievous who uh he said basically the hero with a thousand faces is a horrible way to critique storytelling unless you're looking at storytelling in western media written after Joseph Campbell published this. <laughs> yes. Because, <laughs> wow, this thing that was influential has influenced things, and it didn't influence things beforehand. Yeah, because people are basically just taking this as a quick guide to story beat writing. Yes. Uh, though, as a bit of a writer myself, when I see sort of outlines like this, my first instinct is like, Okay, how can I subvert it so my story doesn't fit with this? Probably a good start. So, uh, <laughs> yes. So if there's a call for adventure of of some sort, all right, let's not refuse the call. Let's get on with this. Let's let's do the thing. Okay. <laughs> supernatural aid? No, there's nothing supernatural going on here. This is all actually makes sense. Uh, and we we were kind of expecting to cross this threshold, so it's not really crossing a first threshold because we're prepared for it. Uh, but you know. Maybe something else happens. I don't know. <laughs> but then you, then you start running into the problem of, once again, some of these are just so broad here that it's not, it can kind of be anything can be slotted into that. And just sort of the only way to sort of escape that then is to change up the order. All right. So instead of uh, going from to, uh, you know, that crossing that first threshold, we jump ahead in the story. It's like, yes, we d went on some adventures and now we are, uh, we're actually at something that's actually interesting. Hooray! <laughs> and then, of course, since since Joseph Campbell is working from such a Eurocentric perspective, you're codifying into this idea a lot of problematic colonialist ideas. Um, the chosen savior idea, which is mm -hmm. a big problem because, like, they don't get into it in this movie, which is interesting because everyone kind of backdates and says that they do. But um luke is the chosen hero they don't really get into the fact that he was like born into this as the inheritor of special powers they they don't really get into where the powers come from it kind of is assumed that maybe anyone who applies themselves could use them 
which would be sort of more of a general mage sort of thing. But in later movies, they get into how the Force is a literal inherited power. Yes, uh, which unfortunately just gotten so stuck there that it's kind of hard to get away from. Uh, I did enjoy that in uh, episode eight, it's like, yeah, this is not from these specific bloodlines because that's silly. Unfortunately, they kind of undid that in episode nine. Hmm. So you're codifying in a lot of problematic tropes by basically saying that all stories meet all of these problematic tropes. Um, you run into this general issue, especially in something like Star Wars, something very pastiche that's taking a lot of inspiration from various places, because they are copying so many things out of other media sources and other storytelling genres and other ways of doing these things that... If you uncritically copy something with problems, you uncritically copy those problems. Yes. It, uh, it's the, the building that was built without uh, handicap accessibility in mind going to a new owner's uh, problem. But the problem's still there. It's just, you know, the people that own the building now don't realize it. The one that most, like, definitely jumps out to me is, of course, the, the beginning of the movie is very Western-inspired. Luke's family is a homesteader. They're farming in a barren, hostile environment. It's very Western. The sand people are coded indigenous. The only point they have in the movie is to be a mindless, faceless threat that the hero has to overcome and makes the frontier dangerous. Yeah, they uh, are not really being treated as people, but more hostile terrain. And you get into a weird thing because it's definitely coded from Western, like American Western storytelling. But the visuals are all coded sort of Middle Eastern desert. Yes. Which you're just, you're just mixing your tropes. So you wind up with coded native american peoples in more sort of a arabic style desert garb so you're hitting two racisms in one good Whoops. job uh, well uh, hopefully the uh, the hosts here in tunisia don't get too upset with us. Mm -hmm. so anyway basically like of course like people can argue like that's not what they meant to do they're just taking these tropes from elsewhere but if you if you copy a trope that has problems and you don't address them or call them out or do anything interesting with them. I, I was hearing this interview a while back about um, re reclaiming Lovecraftian elements in modern horror writing. And they, they pointed out this idea that like Lovecraft has a lot of problems, very famously, very, very racist problems. Yes. <laughs> Because yeah, you know, because there's a number of uh, items in his uh, writing that's like, yes, this is all about uh, thoughts about degeneration and things like that, which is very much a uh, eugenic sort of uh, idea. But he's so influential in modern horror writing that his influences are there. So either you just leave them there, and then they're just a big racist thing sitting in the middle of your writing, or you do something to examine the fact that the influences in your specific genre have inherently racist origins. I guess uh, in some ways, uh, that's one of the way, 
one of the reasons I kind of enjoy subversions of various sorts, because then you can it, it it allows a vehicle to examine some of these uh, uh, sort of bad uh, you know aspects of, of uh, you know you know core ideas and tropes uh, that because you're not because you're sort of intentionally unraveling the the uh, the core thing there and which allows you to sort of question things a little bit more I guess directly in that way and in that fashion because then you're like okay so there's this monster that was born of this you know, sort of a situation and now, and, and so, so we're going to subvert the trope and say, all right, so what if instead of this being this, this weird, you know, uh, you know, uh, sort of eugenic sort of idea here, uh, we're going to have this be, oh, this monster was just kind of came out of this family that wasn't any, any sort of racist problems at all. Hmm. Now that's maybe not good enough. Uh, let's let's one up this a little bit more so that it's more of a a this monster was grown in a lab, perhaps. Perhaps we'll go with that, go with that, but it's still going to end up as this sort of Lovecraftian sort of vibe as far as the structure. But it's going to be not necessarily born of any sort of uh, you know uh, you know underlying uh, you know people here, uh, and so you can sort of twist things here and there to come up with some of the similar aesthetics, but you're going to still have to be sort of very careful about that. There is maybe, I guess, one thing that's always kind of bothered me. Mm-hmm. And that's when Alderaan has exploded, that Leia is upset, but she's not really upset for that long. No one's upset for that long about <laughs> anything. Like, yes. they, it was in some deleted scenes and something that they added back but like through even in the text of the movie originally you hear about one of luke's best friends who shows up later and dies almost immediately no one cares you don't even get luke going like no friend so it's there's a lot of i guess the, the the emotional depth of this movie is very much lacking which is a unfortunate but uh, luke's so upset again, he presents he forgets princess leia's name at the end yes <laughs> so i guess is so someone who maybe you know is still a bit of a, a star wars fan this is always something that sort of bothered me about out this film and unfortunately it's sort of spawned a, a trend where there's a lot of like well we're over that horrible tragedy let's move on to the next plot point in, in a number of movies well, there is, you know, trauma is not easy and it's not so easily sort of sidestepped as it is in this film. So, you know, that's something I I would have be uh, laid as a critique of Star Wars. I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with going, it's an action movie, like action movie things are going to happen. We're not too worried about the fact that everyone just blew up because it's an action movie, but you do wind up with some weird disconnects when you very specifically say, we're going to torture you with the idea that we're going to kill everyone on your planet. And then five minutes later, it's never mentioned again. There can be a middle ground and the middle ground is actually quite expansive, but we're not even there. So yeah. All right. We still, we still definitely have to get to some history and legacy stuff, but that's all going to fit way better leading up to our next cool project. So, in the meantime, I think we've got to have the galaxy's favorite game show!
everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show, where, uh, sh- should I have a special name this week? Uh, like, Narglu Padadu or something like that? <laughs> the Galaxy's Favorite Long, Long Ago Game Show. <laughs> so we got several prizes to hand out this week, and, uh, so let's get on with it, because everyone's been racking up the points, and, uh, well, uh, Luke got a pretty big win while there with, uh, that last, uh, Death Star hit there, so he's, uh, He's, he's going to be definitely winning one of these here, but we're starting off uh, with the Capitular Prize, which goes to Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan Kenobi for uh, successfully sneaking you out the Death Star. If only he wasn't a beacon for Force users, then you might not have ever gotten caught. What does he win, Gipwin? He wins some better stealth force stuff, because, like, he was really sneaky for a while, and then as soon as Vader shows up, he's like, oh, well. Don't even try. You like that you see them use force powers for this and other things. So he needs to learn some like cloaking or something. Maybe some sword fighting at all. <laughs> so uh, maybe you could uh, talk to some of the folks from uh, Dragon Ball Z because uh, they're all about like hiding uh, power levels and stuff like that, so they don't get uh, picked up by scanners and things like that. So maybe something like that. I don't know. <laughs> of course, Allegheny did get to win being killed because he looked at the script said i basically have nothing to do for the rest of this movie why don't you just kill off my character okay and (laughs) thus he did (laughs) our second prize is the giant enemy crab prize which goes to the death star because you just gotta hit that one weak point just right and to do a whole bunch of mass massive damage you blow up the whole thing what does it win Capwin? the death star wins a small metal mesh screen so they said it's an exhaust port. They don't have anything over it, even a little bit. Nope. Apparently these torpedoes can only go through something six feet across. Those are huge torpedoes, by the way. But, yes. <laughs> like, just put a tiny mesh over the thing, and there you go. It just caused it to explode on the surface. But maybe they, maybe they did, actually, because that first run uh, that uh, they fired off, uh, it did, did impact on the surface. So maybe they were blowing up the uh, the mesh. Hmm. Two layers of mesh. That <laughs> I know that they like wrote in some stuff later. I know they retconned this whole thing to be an intentional flaw or whatever. But like, uh, this is just they do a little bit to cover the thing. It's a giant yes. <laughs> hole in the side of your station. Well, the Death Star Two is going to have a whole bunch of giant holes in its uh, its sides. Hmm. Our third prize is the freaking Wizards Prize, which goes to Darth Vader and Obi-Wan for being mystic, mystic space wizards who can do all sorts of funky stuff with their powers. What do they win, Gapwood? They win some pointy hats. Like, they got the robes and the cool Vader thing, but, like, I miss the pointy hats. Yeah, wide-brimmed pointy hats, maybe some stars on the sides. How about that? Star Wars have star hats. <laughs> star ha- hats in the Star Wars. Excellent, excellent. Our uh, fourth prize is the Become Neo prize, which goes to Luke for starting his path to become a Jedi, especially right there at the end. Uh, what does he win, Gepwin? Luke wins some sort of interpretation of Force powers, force powers as a trans-coming-out story, the same way that we get from The Matrix, because I feel like it could fit. I'm not good enough to critique it back in, but I know there's a reading of the movie that would work. Transitioning to a wider world. Our final prize is the Where's My Medal, which goes to Chewie, because seriously, he doesn't get his damn medal despite being right there and saving Luke's bacon alongside Han. You know, Han might have been, you know, flying the ship, but who was manning the guns? Come on. Chewbacca was right there. Come on. 
What does he win, Gapwin? Chewie doesn't get so much as a prize as an explanation. Pretty sure he didn't get a medal because everyone knew they were going to have to fly him back to his planet for life day in a minute, and no one wanted to deal with this. Can, can we do the splinter of the mind's eye instead? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, that's all the prizes we got to hang out this week. There, it was a, very tempted to have the whole, like, 30 more, but uh, we only got so much time here, so uh, go ahead and take us away, Gepwin. <laughs> yes, thank you for the concise version of the galaxy's favorite game show! Woo! Okay, so... Woman is temptress. <laughs> mm, yes. Yeah, we got distracted. Yes. <laughs> Pardon me, bringing up woman is temptress. So uh, we've got that uh, part of our hero's journey done for uh, this week. Uh, what's next here? All right, so we are going to go into a little bit more legacy from this because Star Wars was a massive success, yes. second grossest, second high, second grossest, second highest grossing American movie of the time after uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah. <laughs> Gone with the Wind, I think, was uh, sort of the, the, the leader there for quite some time there. And, yeah, uh, I think until the Marvel stuff started. That's like, you know, inflation adjusted too, so. Yeah. So, of course, it changed the way that they make movies because giant blockbuster things became popular. It changed the way they market movies because merchandising and licensed licensed uh, tie-ins and all this stuff so of course the story goes some of this might be apocryphal some of it might be a little little influential but maybe wouldn't completely have changed things the way that people talk about but the general story goes everyone started making pulpy sci-fi things they started yes. <laughs> writing more pulp sci-fi things inspired by Star Wars. They started greenlighting every sci-fi movie that they could possibly do. And of course, studios started rummaging through their own IPs to see if they had anything that was kind of like this Star Wars thing that was making so much money. Oh, uh, do we have some science fiction? Could we turn it into a movie of some sort? Uh, we have an old film we could remake, or maybe a, an old series we could look back on. Yeah, and don't you know... Paramount had this thing that uh, they were planning to make another series of a little bit. It was kind of in the works called Star Trek Phase 2. Never got hugely out of the planning phases, but they had some ideas for bringing back the old crew to do some new stuff in a new series. And maybe they would work a little better as like one of these Star Wars style things. Yeah, we'll uh, get them on a, a some sort of space adventure and... Uh... Then they'll uh, go and have some sort of space dog fights, right? Yeah. So, like, I I don't buy into the theory that the rest of Star Trek wouldn't have happened if Star Wars hadn't been such a massive success. Star Trek was a pretty big cultural force. It had a lot of people behind it. They were already planning some stuff to continue on from the original series at this point. But it probably would not have progressed as it did. Yeah, it definitely, one, helped, may have influenced them getting into movies instead of more television or other projects they were looking at. And it definitely, definitely influenced the style and color of 
everything that came after it. So next time we're returning back to Star Trek from our little aside here, historically relevant aside, to start in on the first of the massive number of Star Trek movies that we're going to have to watch in a row, the way they were never meant to be viewed. <laughs> well, uh, in a row, we can sort of, you know, have a good look at the development of the characters. That we can. But, like, these movies came out, like, three years apart. Most of the, like, you're not meant to watch them week after week, like a TV <laughs> show. But we can. So that's just the power of the fu- being living in the future, you know? Yep. <laughs> we definitely can. We didn't stop to ask if we should. <laughs> oh, we should. We should. Yes, uh, the motion picture in 79, yes. Wrath of Khan in 82, Shirts or Spock in 84, Voyage Home in 86, The Final Frontier in 89, and The Undiscovered Country in 91. Yeah, some of which even overlap the release of the next Star Trek TV show. Yeah, uh, the TNG was like uh, 80... Eight originally started, mm. or some of them share actors, most of them share sets. It's going to yeah. be really interesting. Yes, <laughs> so I guess we could sort of go back to a uh, guest star uh, focus as far as our intro bits. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so next week we are well, maybe next week, maybe a couple weeks, we are working out the timing. I apologize, bear with us. Um, next time. We're jumping back into Star Trek and into our massive run of Star Trek movies with the interesting but very unimaginatively named Star Trek The Motion Picture. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Star Trek The Slow Motion Picture. have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>